one night after a youth group for our high school students at Christensen Academy in Venezuela, uh, Nate, a freshman in high school at the time, approached me and asked if we could meet. I could tell something was bothering Nate. So I said, yeah, we, let's meet. So we set for a couple days later. And Nate made the walk up from uh, campus to the house that Leanne and I were living in with baby Karis at the time. And I remember we went back to the back living room. And, and as I think back upon it, I, I realized I kind of messed up. He should have sat down on the couch and I should have taken the rocking chair. But we, we kind of got that switched because the couch would have been more comfortable. And anytime, you know, someone's coming to divulge information, you want to put them, you know, as comfortable as possible. But also rocking chairs are just really, really cool. And I needed all the help I could to, you know, bring my cool factor up. But I messed that one up. Nate got the rocking chair. I'm on the couch. And Nate begins to just share just some like spiritual questions, some concerns, some doubts. He was really wrestling with some things going on in his life. Uh, he was the son of missionaries. His, his dad was this kind of big wig. And, and I think Nate was just having a lot of, of faith questions, but personal questions. And I remember at one point during the conversation, all of a sudden this Bible verse came to my mind. And you may be thinking, oh, well, okay, big deal. Because you look at me as, you know, you're our pastor, Aaron. That's kind of what you do. You, you know, you try to help teach us the scripture. So, of course, a Bible verse would come to your mind. But you got to realize this took place back in my early 20s, uh, mid-20s. And back then, I didn't feel like I really knew the Bible that well. Like, I, I grew up in church, but I just hadn't really been taught the scriptures. In fact, the joke was that in college, when I would have to, I went to a Christian school, and so sometimes I'd have to write a paper for Bible class, and I'd be writing a paper and I would, you know, turn to my wife and I'd say, hey, where's that verse about? And I'd say it and nine times out of 10, she'd say, oh, I think it's in such and such. And she'd be right. And, and so I called her my walking concordance. Uh, if, you, if you don't know what a concordance is, it's where you could look up a word and there, you know, it'll show you where that word's found all throughout the Bible. In fact, many of you, your Bibles probably have a small little concordance in the back of it. Leanne was that for me. Well, as I'm sitting there meeting with Nate in Venezuela, my walking concordance wasn't home. I was on my own. And much to my shock and pleasure, this verse comes to mind. And I remembered it until the point where Nate begins to draw to a close and he begins to look at me like, I need some help. I need some advice. And I handed him my Bible and I said, hey, open up to the passage. I remember Nate opens up and I tell him, hey, read this section. So he begins to read it aloud. All of a sudden he stops and he looks up at me and he says, the Bible really says this? And I wanted to say, uh, you just read it. Of, of course it does. But I, I, I didn't. But he, he wasn't asking like out of skepticism or sarcasm. He was really shocked, surprised, delighted to see that the scriptures that had been written thousands of years before we were sitting there in Venezuela reading this together, it spoke directly into his situation. And he was just blown away. And I know when he walked away from my house, he didn't just walk away feeling like, wow, Mr. Bird is a really good counselor. Nate walked away just feeling like he had just been counseled by God. You ever found yourself in a place where you're just struggling with doubt? You're struggling with what to do? You're not quite sure how to move forward? And in that moment, what you're longing for, what you're clinging to, looking for, is some sort of direction. You need someone or something to kind of give you some counsel. Or maybe you've wrestled with something from your past or you look at the way you do things and you see the damage it does to your relationships and you're wondering, why am I the way I am? And you find yourself longing for counsel. I think as humans, we actually crave counsel. We want someone or something to kind of give us some insight in what we are to do and how to move forward. 
I, I know people who've made decisions because of something they heard in a song. Like they knew that means I need to break up with this person or I need to begin this relationship. I know other people who they will go and search in horoscopes or, or in self-help books. That, that they'll go and they'll try and find anything, even a fortune cookie. They, they will long for something just to give them a little bit of direction. I, I know a number of teenagers that they, they post their questions on you know, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, looking for someone to say, well, you know, and they say, share something. And that's the guidance that they need in life. And if we're honest, some of us here today, this is why we've come. We, we didn't really come just to sing some songs, to hear some guy get on a stage and talk for a while. Really what we came for was some sort of direction. We're human. We crave to have a counselor. Now there used to be a day and an age, if you said that you were going to a counselor, that was considered a bad thing. Like, like you, you kept that hidden, you kept that secret. I, I'm glad that stigma is starting to go away. It's still there for some people, but, but nowadays it's not so uncommon for someone to admit, yeah, I, I go to a counselor and there's no shame in it because they're admitting I'm broken. It used to be we didn't want anyone to know we were broken, especially here in the Midwest. I mean, we're, we're farm people. We're, we're tough. We're, we can handle this. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are so many times in life where we don't know what to do. We don't know why we are the way we are. What we long for is a counselor. Someone to begin to ask us questions, to peer into our life, and to speak in, to give us some direction. And when we have that sense of direction, we'll feel kind of like Nate did when he left my living room in Venezuela. We'll walk out with a little bit of delight, realizing that God loves us, he's with us, and he's for us. That's why I hope that you'll come for this entire Advent series. Uh, in this Advent series, we're going to look at four different titles for Jesus. And my hope and prayer for you is that you, by, by being a part of this, will be reminded that God loves you, he's with you, he's for you. And even if right now in life you feel like you are completely alone, you're in some sort of spiritual or emotional darkness, you feel like no one understands, you feel like God is incredibly distant, you try to pray and cry out to him, but you just feel like your prayers bounce off the ceiling and nothing is getting through, then suddenly you'll realize that God has been at work even if you can't see it, even if you don't know it, that he really does love you. He really is for you. He really is with you. And he is counseling you even when you don't know it. So Father, I just pray right now that you would help us to truly see you as the wonderful counselor. That this title that was given to Jesus 700 years before he was ever born shows us who he is today. And I, I pray for those that have gathered here today that, that need some counsel. They need some advice. They need some direction. They need some guidance. And then they are craving it. And Father, we turn to so many bad counselors. And I pray that today we would really get a glimpse of who you are and how you can lead us and guide us in this life. And through that, you can give us peace, a peace that surpasses understanding. You can give us an awareness. You can give us insight and knowledge. Because God, I know that you love us deeply. And you love this world around us deeply. You created it. It's yours. And yet it's broken and hurting, just like some of us. So Father, I pray for our restoration so that you can use us to help bring your restoration to the world. So Father, help us today as we dive into this Advent series to see Jesus for who he really is so we can celebrate the fact that he came for us. Help us today to see him as a wonderful counselor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Amen and amen. Today we are going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're actually going to be in Isaiah every single week of this series. So if you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. If you uh, are a first-time guest with us and don't have a Bible, don't, don't worry. I'm going to have the scripture up on the screen for you. But I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. At, either after our worship gathering, stop back by our Give and Grow table and pick up a copy of the Bible. Uh, just m- take it. It's our Christmas gift to you. Make it your everyday Bible. And the next time you come to Riverwood, bring it with you. We open this up every single week together. Also, you may notice some people around you pulling out their phones. We are totally fine with digital Bibles here. So if you have a Bible already on your phone, Feel free to pull it out. No one's going to judge you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on your phone, take the time right now to download one uh, to it. Uh, I think you'll, uh, that way you'll always have a Bible with you and I think you'll benefit from it. As you're turning to Isaiah, uh, how many of you have ever watched a sports movie? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, yeah, most, most hands went up. All right. Chances in that sports movie is really high that there was a pep talk. Like, like the coach or maybe the captain of the team or maybe a, a parent or some wise mentor, like spoke to the team or to a player to give them this pep talk before they went out to the big, you know, championship game or whatever else it was they were facing. Something similar happens inside movies where there's a big battle scene. Hey, you know, take like Lord of the Rings or, or Braveheart or, you know, even Star Wars. You know, right before the big battle, the, the general or the king gets in front of the, the troops, the army, and gives them this inspiring speech, a pep talk, trying to, to get them ready to go out and face their foe. But have you ever thought about when the pep talk takes place? Like almost every single time the pep talk comes, it's when things are not looking good. They, they always set the movie up where the foe is like stronger than everyone else. They're bigger, they're faster, there's more of them. There's no way that our heroes are going to win. The odds are completely stacked against them. And that's why they need the pep talk. That's what's going on here in Isaiah 9. God is speaking to the people of Judah. Judah is a sister country to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And at this time, Judah is not doing well spiritually. It says in the book of Isaiah that they were going through the motions, but their hearts were far from God. In just a moment, we're going to see God describe it as being in spiritual darkness. The the, the people were not tied to God. They're going through the motions, but they're far from him. And this puts them in a dangerous spot. Because rather than seeking to put their trust in God, they're now starting to put their trust in other things. We're going to see in a moment how they're going to try and put their trust in another nation. Some of them were putting their trust in other gods, which are fake gods, false gods. Some of them were just putting their trust in themselves. And God knew that he had designed humanity with his image in them. So what they needed to truly be alive was him. And so when they're living apart from him, they're not living life as it was designed. And so this becomes dangerous for them. So God begins to warn them, to call them back, to woo them back. But they're not coming. They're staying defiant. So God, being a loving father, is going to discipline his children. And part of the discipline was God warning them. He was going to send a country, a nation, who would invade them. It would kill a number of them. And they were going to cart a great number of the people off into exile. That's kind of a bad message. It's doom and gloom. It doesn't look good. It seems like everything's stacked against Judah. And yet God, because he loves them, in the midst of this message, gives them a pep talk. And one of those pep talks is found here in Isaiah 9. So join me, Isaiah 9, start in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I know many of you have heard uh, this passage, particularly verses 2, 6, and 7. Because they are a prophecy about this son that is given. It's about Jesus coming some 700 years later. And so pretty much every year at Christmas, we trot this verse out and then proceed to ignore it for the next 365 days. And here I am doing the exact same thing, trotting it out for all of us to look at. And we're going to be in this uh, uh, verse six for uh, all uh, four weeks of this Advent series. But I need to point out something about prophecy. Uh, Yes, much of the prophecy that God gives in the scriptures, especially here in Isaiah, it is for the far future. Like I said, this is written somewhere six, seven, eight hundred years before the coming of Jesus. We think it's about 730 years. I mean, that, that's quite, you know, the, the, the prophecy to be able to predict things happening 700 years later. But much of the prophecy that happens, in, especially in Isaiah, isn't just about the far future. It's also about the near future. I, I recently was playing uh, Sudoku on my phone. Uh, if you don't know, or some people call it Sudoku. Uh, if you don't know what Sudoku is, it's this game where you've got nine uh, rows and columns. And what you do is you've got to fit the numbers one through nine in there. And they can only be used once in each column, in each row, and in each three by three box. Right? It's kind of a little mind twister puzzle type game, the kind of games I like. Well, the, the particular app I was using, anytime you would complete a row or a column or even one of the three by three boxes, the numbers would kind of pop up for a second, spin and jump back as if to celebrate that, hey, you got it right. You know, and, and it's kind of twisted, but it's actually kind of pleasing to watch them jump and dance because you know, hey, I got, I got it. But every game, in every game, there comes a point when you will place a number and it doesn't just fulfill the column or the, the, the row. It does both at the same time. And you get the pleasure of watching both a column and a row jump and dance that, hey, you found that one thing. That's kind of what God's prophecy does. It could be fulfilled at the time, right there, within a few days, months, years. But then often there's this far future. And it also fulfills that. And so you can't look at it and go, well, look, it was fulfilled back then. So it, it can't be the, for the future. Or we only look at it as future and not forget that God was actually working at that time as well. But let, let me give you an example. Go back to chapter 7 here in Isaiah. This is another famous Christmas uh, passage. We're going to be in verse 14. Uh, to, let me set the stage for a second. Uh, Judah is ruled by a guy by the name of King Ahaz. K- King Ahaz 
does not love or fear God. Uh, he, he's got some Jewish priests around. I mean, he's Jewish. They're, you know, they're, you know, used to be part of Israel. They're the sister countries. But honestly, Ahaz does not fear God at all. He, he is a bad dude. And, and what's happening is there are two nations right nearby that are threatening to invade uh, Judah. And it's putting the people at, at dis-ease. And, and Ahaz is getting a little nervous. And I, this prophet Isaiah keeps showing up saying, Ahaz, you need to trust God. You need to follow God. God's got this. Put your trust in him. And Ahaz is like, eh, I don't know about that. And so actually at this point in the story, Ahaz is considering joining up with Assyria. Uh, Assyria, which you may know as Babylon. They were the superpower of the day. And, and they were going to be coming down and, and starting to take over everything. Well, because these two other little nations are looking to invade Judah, Ahaz thinks, well, if I just partner up with Assyria, if I put my trust in them, well, then that's going to scare these other nations. Or if they do begin to invade me, Assyria will come down and, and wipe them out. He'll protect us. And so this is what Ahaz is considering. Well, Ahaz, the, at this particular story, he's out at this place called the washers, washer's field. It's this big pool where the, the maids would uh, come and wash all the clothes of, of the palace, you know, both the king and his family, but, but also those who work in the palace. So it, it's where they're, they're out washing the clothes. And one scholar I read said uh, that he thought that Ahaz was out there at this pool trying to figure out how can they reroute it into the palace, into the, the, the city, so that if the, these other nations do come and invade, they've got a water source coming in and they will be protected. So, so he's out there trying to strategize, figure all this out. And God has told Isaiah to take his oldest son and show up there at the washer's field to confront Ahaz. So Isaiah comes up and, and there's Ahaz and, and he says, Ahaz, God wants you to know that he's with you and he's for you. And he wants you to ask him for a sign. Well, Ahaz tries to act all spiritual like, oh, no, I, I couldn't ask anything of God. No, 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 I'm not going to ask for a sign. And Israel's just like throws, I mean, Isaiah throws his hands up. It's just like, you gotta be kidding me. Like God just told you, ask him for a sign. And now you're going to disobey God. You are just so frustrating. And so Isaiah says, fine, God's going to give you a sign. And that's verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, many of you have heard this. You, you hear this every single Christmas. This is what uh, Matthew quotes in, in his recording of the gospel, that when the, the arrival of Jesus or, or the announcement of Jesus, that, that he refers back to this. And so we know that the far future gets fulfilled through Jesus, but there's something else going on here. It's being fulfilled at its time. You see, as they're standing here at the washer's field, there would be all these young women around. The Hebrew word for young woman could be translated virgin, but it could just mean someone who's young of age. And Isaiah seems to, in a sense, point to one of them and say, this young woman right here, she's going to get pregnant. And she's going to name the child Emmanuel as a reminder that God is with us. That we are to put our trust in God, not in Assyria, but into God. And so this baby is going to be that reminder to us. In fact, it goes on in the next uh, verse or two. To say that even before the child is able to decide what is right and wrong, these two nations that you fear, Ahaz, they are going to be deserted. They're going to be decimated. Like they're going to not be a threat anymore. And it's going to happen just within the next 9, 10, 11, 12 months. Put your trust in God. And here's the sign that you can trust God. 
And we see it fulfilled in the very next chapter. Go over to verse eight. I mean, chapter eight, start in verse one. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters. In other words, write it in a way that everyone can read it. Everyone can understand what it says. Belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. So what God is saying is, Isaiah, write this down. I'm going to bring these two witnesses so that they can attest that you wrote this down ahead of time. Then verse three, and I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And that's exactly what happens. This baby ends up being born. And he unfortunately has to be called Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, so any of you who are pregnant right now, look for names. Uh, there you go. But you might not want this name because this name means the seed spoils, the prey hastens. How'd you like that for your name? It's basically a reminder that no matter what you're trying to do, Ahaz, Assyria is coming. Ahaz wants to put his trust in Assyria. And basically God is warning him, don't do it. You put your trust in them, they're going to decimate you. And that's eventually what happens. Now you're probably sitting there saying, okay, but hang on, Aaron. Um, the baby over in chapter seven was called Emmanuel. This baby, Isaiah's son, is called Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Like, it's not the same kid. Actually, it is. Because if you go down to verse eight there in chapter eight, you'll see God address Emmanuel. You see, this baby is to be a reminder to Israel. God is going to discipline you through the coming of Assyria. You think if you trust them, everything will be fine. But even though the baby's going to remind you of that through his name, his nickname is Emmanuel. That even in the midst of this, God is going to be with you because God is for you. And even when you are taken into exile and it looks like your life is absolutely ruined, God's with you. He's protecting you. He loves you. And he will eventually draw them out of exile back into Israel. That's what prophecy in Isaiah does. It is fulfilled in the near term, but it's also fulfilled in the far term. Because we realize that this wasn't just a baby born to a young woman, that Jesus was actually born of a virgin who'd never been with her husband. We know that this baby is not just nicknamed Emmanuel, that Jesus is the true Emmanuel, that he really was God with us, God in the flesh. You see, even though it's fulfilled at the time of Isaiah, the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ. And that's what we have to remember as we come to chapter 9. We don't just look at it as some historical record that maybe there was some great baby born who became a king. That ultimately, this is pointing to Jesus. Because as we look at Isaiah 9, 6, we see that this child is born, the son is given. And what's it describe about him? That the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, if we're just talking about a normal king, okay, the government's on his shoulder. He takes up the, uh, the authority, the dominion to rule and reign over this little kingdom. But Jesus isn't just an earthly king. He's a heavenly king. And he came not to just rule a, a plot of land. He came to bring the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven had been under assault ever since Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and sin entered in the scene. And sin began to try to rule and reign and keep people away from God. 
And Jesus came to crash into that to overthrow the tyranny of sin so that humanity could find freedom through the cross, enter back into a relationship with their God, and the image of God within them could be restored. That's the story. That's the gospel. And that is what Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus ever took his first breath on this earth, is saying. And he begins to describe this king. And the reason we know it's about Jesus is because of the descriptions that he gives him. And that's what we're going to do during this uh, Advent series, is each week we're going to look at one of these four names, these four titles that Isaiah, 700 years ahead of time, gives to this king, gives to the Messiah, to Jesus. And this week we're going to look at the first name, the first title, and that is Wonderful Counselor. The, the word wonderful just means to find delight in. Like, like you see something, it just causes you wonder. But many scholars, they think that this wonderful counselor, like it should be separated. That, like, that's why the King James Version sticks a little comma between these two. In the King James, it's not four titles, it's, it's five. But because Isaiah seems to link these other words together, like eternal father, prince of peace, it doesn't make as much sense to put the comma between. It, it makes more sense to put them together. That this is a counselor that you would actually delight in. Now, if you've ever studied another language, you know that there's some times where you, you cannot take a word and find a direct translation in the new language. You know, maybe, you, maybe you've studied Spanish or German or French, and, and, and you, every once in a while there will be a words, and they're like, well, in English it's kind of the equivalent to this, but it kind of also means this. And you start realizing, like, okay, it's not a 100% equality there. Same with Hebrew, an ancient uh, Eastern language, coming over into English, especially our modern English. The, the Hebrew words, by the way, I am not a Hebrew scholar. I'm, I'm getting this from the Net Bible. Uh, I encourage you to go to uh, net, uh, netbible.org, or sorry, bible.org, and look for the Net Bible, and you can find the Luminous Study Environment, and they'll help you understand. The Net Bible has all these wonderful notes, and some of these study notes are the translator's notes, where they actually tell you, here's why they translated it, what they did. And it's interesting, because in the Net Bible, when it comes to this phrase for wonderful counselor, they, they have a note on it discussing why they translated what they did. Because it could mean like an extraordinary strategist. Uh, they, they ended up in their translation putting it as an amazing advisor. But they said the Hebrew could also kind of be like a phrase, not just two words. But it's like one who, who plans miraculously. In, in other words, it's someone whose thoughts are so much higher than everyone else's thoughts. Like they just have such clarity. They, they put together a plan, a strategy that everyone just goes, wow, that was Amazing. They are wonderful. And that's who Jesus is. He is a wonderful counselor. And that is something that the people of Judah desperately needed. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 19, actually, go ahead and, and peek there. Chapter 8, verse 19, we'll see who they used to put their counsel, like, like who they would seek advice from. Uh, listen to this. Here they are in their doom and gloom. It looks like these nations are going to invade them. They're needing help. Where do they turn? Verse 19, it says, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Now, there, there are cultures in our day and age that they, they do this. They, they look back and, and they, they try to contact the dead. They, they figure, well, their ancestors lived this life. Maybe they have some insider thoughts on what we should be doing today. But Isaiah says, um, <laughs> that's not a very good idea. Because first of all, they're dead. 
Like they're, they're, they're past. What you need to do is you need to acquire of God. God who designed life. God who brings the living. He knows how life is to be lived. So you should inquire of him, not the dead. Now, I, I suspect in this room, there, there's not very many of you that, that regularly go to psychics. All right? It's not as big of a deal within our nation. Now, there are some people that do. And maybe some of you in here have done something like that. But I, I got to let you know that psychics, when they really allow themselves to be investigated, they, they're proven to be frauds. There, there are techniques that people can do to make it look like they're contacting the dead or they're getting these ideas and thoughts. But really, all they're doing is they're reading you. And they know how to ask the right questions and draw certain things out and make you feel as if though you really are communicating with some long lost ancestor. But they're a fraud. They're a fake. They're not the type of people that you should be seeking advice from. You know what? Even though maybe most of you don't go to psychics or you know, try to communicate with the dead, how many times do we actually seek advice from those who are, in a sense, unqualified to give us that advice? Just this past week, I uh, heard about uh, Joshua Harris, and he's kind of on a tour. I think there's a documentary about him. Some of you might recognize that name. If you don't know who Joshua Harris is, he wrote a book 20 years ago called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It swept the, the Christian book market. Churches were reading it like crazy. Youth groups were standing up, teaching it, encouraging their kids, because it was a reaction to the modern-day culture of dating. And so Josh was proposing in his book 20 years ago that what you should do is rather than see a girl that you like, ask her out, what you do is you see a girl who has really godly qualities about her. You realize she would make a great wife. You then approach her father, ask for his permission to enter into a courting relationship with the intent to get married someday. Now, some people actually found this really, really helpful, but a bunch of people found this really, really hurtful. They found it had so much pressure involved. And, and what, if, what do you do when you don't have a guy try to court you? Or someone comes up to you and says, hey, would you like to go out? And you're like, uh, you, you have to go talk to my dad first. And just the, the pressure in all of this. And the funny thing is, now, 20 years later, Josh is on this tour around the country and doing this documentary because he's actually apologizing for the book. Because you see, when Josh wrote the book, he was 21 years old. He'd never dated. He'd never been in a courtship relationship. And now here he is at age 43, looking back and realizing that when he was 21, wrote the book, released at 23, he was not qualified to speak on dating, relationships, and marriage. Now as he's gained more knowledge and experience, now that he's been married for, I think, you know, almost 20 years, now that he uh, has been a, a, a going through seminary, he's been a pastor, and, and he's grown theologically, he looks back and realizes... I was unqualified to give advice in this. His intent was good. It was right. But it wasn't as good as it could have been or should have been because he just didn't have the life experience. He wasn't the right person to bring the message. How many times do we turn to someone who isn't quite qualified to speak into our life? We, we post our question on, on Facebook and just let anyone and everyone speak into our lives and maybe they aren't quite qualified to give us the insight that we need. Some of us, we go and we read the latest best-selling book because we've heard so many great things about it. And, and yet, sometimes it's the best-selling books that, that don't always lead and guide us the way they should be because they're not actually drawing us to Jesus. Sometimes they're drawing us away. How much do we need to be seeking after that which draws us into the gospel? 
See, that's what Judah, uh, uh, Isaiah was saying to Judah. Don't turn to the necromancers. Don't turn to the mediums. Don't go to the psychics. Seek God because he is a wonderful counselor. So that brings up the question then, how do we as these modern day Americans, these Iowans, seek God? I'll, I thought of three different ways. Uh, the first way is that we seek God in prayer. Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, I, I forget exactly verse, the verse, verse 8 or so, it says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This idea that if you are a Jesus follower, when you place your faith in Christ, God puts his spirit in you. The problem is many of us just ignore his spirit. We still try to go about doing things in our own power and our own way. But, but Jesus, when he describes the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, he describes the spirit as a helper. The, the Greek word there is paraclete. Just like you can't take a Hebrew word and, and always take it into English with a, an equivalent. Same with paraclete. There's not a great perfect English equivalent. And that's why some translations, they will have the word helper. Others, they have advisor. Some have counselor. The Holy Spirit is there to help guide you, to help lead you. So why not, if you are a Jesus follower, why not rely upon the Holy Spirit to help lead you and guide you? Start talking to him. Ask in prayer. Now, most people, when they're asking of God and they get you know, an answer back, it's not an audible voice. I'd say 98% of people do not hear an audible voice from God. And yet, I know a number of people, including myself, who just have these moments where they just have the sense like, oh, that, that's what I'm supposed to do. They, they, they're praying, and then suddenly it's just like they, they know what the right thing is. And they just have this, this clarity. Happens to me all the time as I like plan for Riverwood. You know, I try to put together, you know, what, what do we need to do for our messages the next year? Or what, you know, what do I do in this particular message? And all of a sudden, I'll just have this idea. And I'll realize that that wasn't just me and my brilliant brain. That, that was God. That was his spirit leading and guiding and directing. Now, a little disclaimer. First of all, I don't think this means that, that you have to let God make every single decision for you. Like, don't walk into Burger King and be paralyzed. Like, oh, I'm in you. I, I, I don't know what to do. God, you got to show me. Is it, is it chicken or hamburger today? Right? Because it's not like God's going to go, oh my goodness, he picked the hamburger. It's chicken today. I, I can't believe it. I'm going to have to kill this guy. Right? No. God gave you a brain. Use it. I think he's honored and glorified in that. Most of the decisions that you're seeking to try to make in life, it is not a question of sin. But sometimes you run into issues in life where you don't know what to do. And I think you actually honor God when you turn to him saying, God, I don't know how to move forward on this. I, I'm stuck. Would you give me insight? Sometimes God, in his, his mercy, he gives it right away. Sometimes he lets us keep chasing after him. Remember uh, last week we were talking about persevering in prayer. Sometimes that's what we got to do. We just keep asking and asking and asking. But instead of getting fed up with, God, you're not answering. I guess I'm just going to ask my friends. I guess I'm just going to read this book. I guess I'm just going to you know, get something out of this movie or this song. You keep seeking after God. Keep seeking, keep seeking, keep seeking. And, and he can and will guide you because he is a wonderful counselor. But it's not just through his Holy Spirit that he speaks to us. I think we can also seek God in the scriptures. I can't tell you the number of times where I have been reading something in the scriptures. And as I've read it, like just something happens. Like I just know what I'm to do. I've actually made major life changes because of something that has happened while reading the Bible. 
Now, again, another little disclaimer. This does not mean that you turn the Bible into a magic eight ball. All right? or it's not an Ouija board. You don't just you know, flop it open, you know, put your finger in and go, oh, okay, is that what I'm supposed to do? remember one day my dad cautioning me against that because I was, I was a teen trying to do that. And my dad's like, yeah, that's not the wisest idea. Because what if you flop it open and you read, oh, Judas committed suicide. Okay, I guess that's not from God. And then you flip to another passage and you go, go and do likewise. Like, oh, okay, this, this isn't good. Right? It, you got to remember that this was written at a certain time for a certain people. So you got to put it in context. So you take a, a verse and you see what's it saying around it. And then if you need to, you take it out. What's it say within this whole book? And even looking at, like, what is the totality of the scripture? How does this point us to Jesus? How does this illuminate the gospel? And as you do that, as you have this high respect for the scriptures, trying to allow it to speak for itself and you not trying to twist it into your situation, it's amazing how God still uses it to lead and guide, how it becomes like a counselor. And so please, please, please seek God in prayer, but also seek him in the scriptures. And, and that, that means you've got to be in the scriptures. And so I'm, I'm going to encourage you, if you need to, set an alarm and just get into the scriptures. Right now, this Advent season, this is the perfect time. Go on the internet, look for some sort of Advent Bible reading plan, and just start following through it. Prepare your heart for the coming of Jesus as we celebrate on Christmas Eve. This is the perfect time for you to just get into the scriptures. And who knows? As you're in the scriptures, thinking you're just reading to learn more about Jesus, all of a sudden you'll just have some clarity about a relationship, about a job, about something going on inside of you. I'm not going to promise it. I can't tell you how exactly when God is going to work. All I know is that he does use his scripture. So seek him in prayer, seek him in scripture, but also seek him in one more thing. And that is in Jesus-centered relationships. There have been a number of times in my life when I have not known how to move forward. I've not known what to do. Many of you have met my church planning coach, Steve. Uh, Steve's spoken here at Riverwood, I think, two or three times. And there have been a, several times where I've just come to him like, hey, I, I don't know how to move forward. And Steve does a great job of asking questions, trying to help me sort through it. it just actually this last week, he, he even said to me, Aaron, I think you know what to do. And it was so helpful, so clarifying to have that. This is why we push growth groups so much at Riverwood. Yes, it means giving up another evening of your week. Yes, it means the schedule gets fuller. And yet, by getting into these groups, you're praying for one another, you're studying the scriptures together, you're building these relationships, and sometimes something happens in the conversation or happens right after the group. But suddenly, this, someone says something, and it just gives you clarity, and you know what to do. That's exactly what happened to Nate in that living room back in Venezuela. Nate came to me because of the relationship. He seemed like I was someone that he could trust. And, and through that relationship, God suddenly showed me something for him. And I gave him the scriptures. And as he sought God right there in the scriptures, he realized this speaks into his situation. And we finished our time in prayer. And he left that day knowing exactly who God was, what God had for him, what God was saying to him. And he just had this sense of relief and peace. And he grew in his faith that day. That's what I want to see happen to you. I want to see you grow in your faith, that you have your identity wrapped up in Jesus and you understand him as a wonderful counselor. And I think the way you're going to discover him as that wonderful counselor is if you just make it the habit of being in prayer, seeking him in the scriptures and seeking him in relationship with one another. And by doing so, this Christmas season could be radically different. Rather than just going through the motions, buying presents, making food, getting together and, and, and calling it done at, at, at the end of December, 
that instead you have the sense of God's presence with you and he's leading and working in you because I believe that God loves you so much. He doesn't want to leave you exactly as you are. He wants to do something great through you. But that is going to happen when you will surrender to him and allow him to be your wonderful counselor. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to surrender, to truly let you be that wonderful counselor. Um, so Jesus, I just pray that, that right now as we go into a time of communion, a time of worship, that you would be ministering to us and you would give us a sense of your presence, that, that you are with us. And Lord, even today, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that even today you'd give some people some clarity, you'd give them some answers. As we seek you right now in prayer, as some of us, we, we open up our, the scriptures, the conversations that will take place after. Lord, would you just lead and guide us to you and to this gospel? And Lord, I pray right now for anyone that does not know you. I am so grateful that you brought them here today. And I pray that they right now would just surrender to you in their hearts. They've just had the sense that they don't know you and they don't know exactly what it looks like to seek after you. And so right now, help them, Father, to just confess that sin to surrender their life to you, to realize, Jesus, you didn't just come to be a baby. You came to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins. You rose again from the dead so we could follow a living Savior. And you're still alive to this day, calling us to follow you. So, Father, I pray that in these next few moments, you administer, that you would lead, you would do what you need to do, drawing those who need to repent of sin to do so, those who, who don't know you to place their faith fully in you, for those that, are, that have had a fantastic week this week, that they would celebrate that. And those that are really struggling, they've got questions, they're, they're worried, that today they would just have a sense that you are with them, you are for them, that you love them, and that in your perfect timing, you will provide the insight and guidance that they need because you are truly a wonderful counselor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.